This is not a red or a blue issue. This is definitely a purple issue in the sense that Alzheimer's and dementias affect all different backgrounds. It doesn't matter where you're from, how much money you have, or what side of the aisle you are on. When you need help, you need help. For potential advocates out there, don't make demands. Have a conversation. Develop relationships. Reward good behavior. I think the whole basis of this podcast and everything we've been talking about is things won't change on their own. They'll change with advocacy. We've seen this throughout our history. Welcome to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, and our guests for this episode have personal and professional experience with the disease. This is also a very special episode. One of our listeners, Dr. David Goldberg, who was a student of both Larry Sabato and me, reached out about doing an episode on a pressing public health crisis that doesn't get enough media attention and that needs political engagement. Our conversation on this issue has important lessons about advocacy and making a difference on other pressing public problems. It was an honor to work on this episode with a former student and a regular listener of the podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, we encourage you to contact us. My email is clo3s at virginia.edu. Joining us for this episode are Luke Albee, who worked in the Senate for 27 years, including as chief of staff for both Senators Patrick Leahy and Mark Warner, and Karen Gardner, who is the advocacy manager for the Alzheimer's Association for all of Virginia. And co-hosting the episode with me is Dr. David Goldberg, an assistant clinical professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. The views expressed by our guests are their own. So Karen and Luke, I, w- I wonder if you'd be willing to start by sharing your experience with Alzheimer's and with advocacy. I was one of the typical people out there who just think um, with Alzheimer's, you forget a name or maybe you get lost. And unfortunately, my husband started showing signs, but we didn't know what the issue was. Uh, It forced us into marriage counseling um, for several years. And we started getting, we started going to the doctor and eliminating everything else that it possibly could be with his symptoms. And after two years of various tests and scans and probes and prods, Um, the doctor finally told us that he had mild cognitive impairment with the likelihood of evolving into younger onset Alzheimer's. And at this time, he was in his mid to late 40s, and we had two children under the age of 10. And I remember looking at this physician and saying, what do we do next? And his reply was, I'll see you back in six months, which unfortunately we hear over and over again. So my trial by fire introduction was getting that diagnosis for my husband. And then unfortunately Googling what was getting ready to happen to our family, which is not the way you want to find out. Uh, that there is out there in the wide world about Alzheimer's. And then I turned to the Alzheimer's Association and started educating myself on best practices and what we can do moving forward. And here we are 13 years later, and 
My husband passed away in 2016. The kids are now graduated from high school and college, and I am working full-time for the Alzheimer's Association here in Virginia. My experience comes started many years ago. I was 26 years old. I was working for Senator Leahy. Um, my parents were going through a late divorce. They lived in Vermont. And we thought my mother was clinically depressed. She's a college professor. She was in her early 60s. And it took a while to figure out, but um, she was also diagnosed with cognitive impairment. Um, I happened to have moved back to Vermont for Senator Leahy's 1986 political campaign, and I moved in with her. So I saw firsthand in slow motion what was going on. And to Senator Leahy's everlasting credit, he, after the election, he let me stay up there on his payroll, work out of his Burlington office, and I managed her decline. I was the one kid who could be in Vermont. My sisters would come up on the weekends. My brother handled all the paperwork, but I was responsible for getting her to stop driving, getting her to retire, getting her to move to assisted living facility. And I knew nothing about Alzheimer's, absolutely nothing. And, and so that's how I ended up getting involved was as a caregiver. Um, and I stayed up there for a couple of years to the point where she didn't recognize me and then moved back to DC. When I got to DC, I vowed to do something and I started as a volunteer and I would basically go babysit an 85 year old. Um, retiree who had Alzheimer's so his wife could go play Scrabble or have a martini with her friends. But anytime the Alzheimer's folks came in either to Senator Leahy's office or later Senator Warner's office, I would make it a point to meet with them because I felt it so personally. And that's actually how I got to know Karen. She was, she and Jim and the crew from all over Virginia came in she was their leader and really was one of the most impressive advocates, you know, that I've encountered in my many years in the Senate. David, I wonder if we could take a step back for a minute. And I wonder, uh, you know, from your perspective, if you could talk a little bit about common misconceptions in the public about Alzheimer's and what the public should know about how the disease impacts individuals and, and also the families that ultimately are responsible for caring for them. Absolutely. Uh, so. So Alzheimer's is not a normal part of aging. Uh, that's a common misconception is that people think that as we get older, you lose your memory, not a big deal. But there's a difference between forgetting an occasional name or uh, where you put your keys versus how it affects your daily life. Um, and so if one thing I think people need to understand is that if you have concerns about uh, your family members uh, with their cognitive health, that it's okay to, to kind of ask them about those things and be an advocate for them. Um, and it's easy to, you, especially if you know your family member, you go to their doctor's appointment with them and the doctor sees them once, once a year or once every six months and say, well, this seemed fine to me. If, if you notice that something is off, advocate for them. You know, get that testing, um, get evaluated. And if you do have a diet, you find out that you know, your family member does have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, which is a type of dementia. Um, 
that you aren't alone. And even though, as we've heard from our two guests on the podcast today, that they started from figuring things out themselves. Uh, as a hospitalist, I'm an internal medicine doctor, um, takes care of patients in the hospital. I try to ask every patient's family who I take care of, if they have dementia, if they've ever heard of the Alzheimer's Association, or if they've heard of local resources in, in Richmond where I work. And most of the time, the answer is no. And so I think that one of the first steps we can do to try to tackle this public health crisis is to make people aware of what Alzheimer's is and to let people know that there are resources out there. You have to look for them, unfortunately, in this stage. But I think as more awareness grows, uh, we'll be able to, to help uh, more people so they don't start off from scratch and Googling what's going to happen because that is very overwhelming. Luke, you mentioned that your personal experience uh, compelled you to meet directly with the folks who came in to advocate um, with the Alzheimer's Association and, and for families that were experiencing Alzheimer's. I wonder if you could just speak from your perspective of being in a congressional office for so long. Um, you know, what really makes for effective advocacy? Um, it's, it's a good and important question. And I feel like folks who come to D.C. oftentimes are intimidated, they're overwhelmed, they haven't done something like this before. They, whether it's Alzheimer's or anything else, they may be coached by someone who's in a national office on how to do it. The way not to do it is to do it impersonally. The way not to do it is to bring in a piece of paper that has the three national talking points on them feel like you have to spit them up just like your manager told you to do. And basically you don't listen, you don't interact, and you don't make an actual connection either with the staff person that you're dealing with or the senator or the representative who you end up meeting. I think, you know, what, why Alzheimer's advocates are generally better than most and why, you know, Karen was particularly extraordinary was she brought Jim with her when, and, and several other, um, several other folks who, who had a, a spouse or family member with Alzheimer's brought them with them. And you kind of wear it on your face. You wear it in your body. Being a caregiver is, is both heartbreaking and exhausting. And, and so showing the real side of the issue is what's important. Doing the research to see if the member that you're meeting with has co-sponsored the bill that you want them to co-sponsor, you know, is important. Um, having positive feedback with the staffer so you get their card and you repeatedly interact with them and develop a relationship, you know, Getting, and I'll, I'll stop talking in one second, but getting a member to commit, to commit to come doing a town hall meeting or to come visit a group of advocates. A lot of times, if you try to do that through a scheduler, it won't happen. But if, if you just ask the member directly, they'll say yes. And sometimes they try to get out of it, but other times you actually you know, end up having the kind of meeting that you want. 
I, I want to thank you both also for for sharing, being willing to share your your personal stories um, because I think that matters so much um, on this issue and, and any issue. Karen, how do you go about being an effective advocate? Well, like Luke mentioned, I feel strongly about sharing our story. Uh, when Jim was still alive, I wanted to support him in sharing his story and giving him a voice. Because all too often, people with dementia feel isolated. They feel slighted. Um, there's still a lot of stigma that David mentioned earlier. There's still so many people that call it senility. Um, I've had people ask me if it's um, if it's contagious, um, and people just don't understand that it's so much more than losing your keys or getting lost. And so. When I advocate, I just tell our story, which unfortunately, it's a surreal moment every time because I'm telling this horrible, depressingly sad, awful story that nobody would want to have happen to them. And I try to make it so that they can empathize and honestly, so it scares them to death so that they feel impelled to give us more funding for research or feel so sorry for us that they want to make sure they support programs for caregivers and families like ours. And after Jim passed away, I had promised him that I would continue the fight because it does run in his family and it was a genetic marker. Um, after we had him tested, we saw. And of course, his big concern once we found that out was the children. And so I not only promised him, I promised myself because if one of my children do end up having that same genetic marker, which is 100%, they will start showing symptoms and signs of dementia in their early 40s. I want them to look back and know that their mom knew that this was a possibility and that she did everything that she could to make sure the same thing didn't happen to them that happens to millions and millions of other people. I mean, if I could jump in, one other thing Karen didn't mention is while Jim was declining, she had a blog that she kept called Missing Jim, which had thousands and thousands and thousands of readers all throughout the country. And part of this, I think David alluded to it, you know, when we were going through this, um, I felt like we were part of, it was like the largest secret society in the world. I thought that no one had ever gone through what we were going through because I didn't reach out to anybody. I didn't, I really didn't even understand the disease. And I just tried to figure out how to keep my job, keep my mother safe. Um, you know, organize the siblings on, you know, the medical paperwork and other things. And, and so, you know, the thing about, the thing about reaching out, the thing about people like Karen is when you read, oh, I found the car keys in the freezer or my spouse took a shower with her clothes on. It's like you have this instant connection that when you experience it yourself, you just can't quite believe you're going through it. But when folks share their stories and their tips for how they coped, 
you know, it can really make handling, you know, your life and the life of your loved one much easier. You know, I was a student, I was a college student when my, my grandfather passed away from, from Alzheimer's and, um, I started, you know, started going with the Alzheimer's Association very briefly before he passed, but that was kind of, uh, pushed me to really try to connect with other people who had experienced that. Cause it's, you know, you think about people don't never talk about Alzheimer's very much. And then, um, they reached out to friends and to other people, uh, at the university of Virginia, uh, there are a lot of people who had great parents or parents with early onset Alzheimer's who were like, yeah, this is something that is uh, going on in my life and we wanted to do something about it. So just starting by talking about it really opened up that opportunity to, to connect with people. Um, so, um, Alzheimer's is like, you know, as we, as we know, is one of the few bipartisan issues that I think at least most Republicans and Democrats can agree that, uh, increasing funding for, for research is important. Caregivers are pretty much on their own to navigate the financial, social, and economic challenges that come with caregiving. How do we frame and convince a majority of Congress to invest in the care economy and to uh, support caregivers? One of the reasons it's bipartisan is everything is personal. And there's a bunch of folks, especially given the chronological ages of most of our elected officials who have been touched by this disease. I mean, I remember I, when I used to speak, you know, when they were doing the combined federal campaign and I went and spoke to, um, treasury staffers and Nicholas Brady was the treasury secretary for George Bush, the first. And he wrote me a beautiful note afterwards, a handwritten note telling me that his mother had Alzheimer's and how touched he was. And so at the one level, yes, there's bipartisan support. At another level, you have the most dysfunctional Congress since any time before, right before the Civil War in 1859. And you have a House of Representatives who, you know, with certain exceptions, and I think avoiding defaulting on the debt was one of them where kind of the inmates are running the asylum. And, and so what they're talking about now with this latest budget deal is before the ink was dry, reneging on it and having severe cuts in programs that are important to all of us. And they generally talk generically about programs rather than specifically about programs, but where they're going is the kind of things that we value now. Um, and there, there's also a couple things. One is having been on the other side of this, I can tell you the Parkinson's people are heartbreaking. The cancer folks are when it turns out that 50% more than 50% of people who have lung cancer now were never smokers and, and that you know, lung cancer is stigmatized as people are getting what they deserve. Well, we need a lot more research for lung cancer. So you do have to shift the whole paradigm and to change the paradigm, you have to be politically active and support candidates who embody your values. Um, but the other thing is, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then Karen can disagree with me. You know, there is, there's this controversy over this new drug 
that may or may not slow the onset of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm not an expert on it. I read some of the articles and it seemed very questionable to me. But when you endorse full federal funding for a drug like this, what it means is other very, very important things get crowded out. So I get it's important to advocate for the causes you believe in, but you also have to see the whole playing field and how what you're doing will affect the bigger picture. Thank you, Luke. Uh, you know, I very seldom disagree with you, so I'm not sure I'm going to start today. But I know with um, the most recent one, lectanumab, um, from Eli Lilly, that is showing more promise than the previous two in this particular drug class. And um, with, you know, the VA saying that they will support and cover the cost for this drug, um, but then um, CMS saying that they won't, it does cause um, some questions when it is the first drug that wasn't supported by CMS that was approved by the FDA. So there's a lot of politics, I believe, going on in the background that unfortunately bring to the forefront the voices that are saying, we need this because we need more time. Um, you know, for our family, if we had had a few more years with Jim, it would have meant, um, you know, him maybe possibly being able to teach the kids how to drive or him being able to go to more ball games or us being able to take, you know, a couple of more trips together or him to be able to teach his son how to shave. Um, you know, and it's not just those moments of living for a graduation or living for a wedding. It's those small details in the day-to-day -day life that get lost in those numbers. There's over 6 million people living with Alzheimer's. Well, what does that look like when you take each story individually and you look at the loss in that family of the income, that loss in the family of um, socialization and lessons learned and lessons and stories, family's history and stories shared and the ability to be able to keep that core family together. You know, we talk a lot about um, the need for support to keep families together these days. And dementia definitely can tear it apart and make families isolated and make finances ruined, get rid of retirements, um, end careers. And I that's all something that needs to be taken into consideration when we're talking full circle about having a few more years in someone's life or staving off the disease for a few years to let those people continue to be active members of society. It just happens that my wife and I were looking at long-term care insurance a while back and, and the percentage of people and funds that are spent on in-home care are going up dramatically, which we take as a good sign because it's less. In my own experience, and again, this is different than Karen who had two little kids. You know, what my mother needed for a long time was basically a trained babysitter. 
someone who wouldn't let her wander away, someone who, if she put the teapot on, she wouldn't burn down her condominium. Like we didn't need advanced skilled nursing care in the house. And it just seems to me that's the kind of thing when you think about federal funding that that could, you know, improve the quality of life of everyone. And it's probably a very cost-effective way to do it and would keep someone in their, you know, home or condo or apartment a lot longer than if it wasn't there. With Jim, he had TRICARE being retired military. And a little known fact, if you are on disability for over two years, TRICARE automatically switches over to Medicare. And daily activities are not covered. Um, and I was told over and over again, if he had some other health condition, diabetes, you know, heart, anything that needed a nurse to come in we would get help. But because he was young, he was very healthy. He was still very um, active, um, trying to stay in shape and exercise. And it was really frustrating to constantly fill out paperwork and call the number. You know, I would call one government agency, tell the story a lot of times in front of Jim because I had to keep my eyes on him. And he would just sit and listen to me over and over and over again, begging for help to take care of him and hearing his story, which was heartbreaking to me because it did cause him to feel like more of a burden. But in order to try to get help, I did have to continually share our story and repeat it over and over to each organization. And they would tell me, they couldn't help me and give me the phone number or the name of the agency that probably could help me. And then that would be a dead end as well. And a lot of times we were turned away because he was too young. Um, we were turned away from the VA because one, he was too young. And also it was not service related. Um, at one point, Senator Warner's office tried very hard to help. They organized a meeting um, that included representatives from the VA, representatives from Medicare um, and social services and others. And we were not able to come up with a solution to help provide some kind of care for him because unfortunately, insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid don't look at dementia, including Alzheimer's and other dementias, as a disease that needs care. Unfortunately, they do look at it as um, something they will cover if you end up in the hospital, but not trying to keep the person at home. It is still part of the disease that affects the brain. And when you affect the brain, obviously, which controls the entire body functions that we all have, and when you start erasing them one by one, that should be covered by insurance, by Medicare and Medicaid, because it would be no different than if a stroke were to impact the blood flow and your ability to walk or your ability to use an arm. 
Um, it's the same thing with dementia, these plaques and tangles stopping you from being able to understand that the honey doesn't go in the refrigerator. Um, you know, if you take apart that lawnmower, you're not going to be able to put it back together. And please don't wander down the street naked. Um, please don't put those keys in the freezer. And so those types of things affect the ability for somebody to care for themselves. Imagine all of the people who have dementia who are home alone. What if Jim didn't have his family with him and he was living alone going through this? And there's millions of people out there undiagnosed because they live alone and nobody understands. And there are also a lot of dementia patients who are in the um, unhoused population and also um, in, interred in some kind of facility, maybe prison. Um, and I think that's not talked about and discussed enough as well. So, you know, Alzheimer's was, was first discovered, for lack of a better term, over a hundred years ago. And it was actually a younger onset patient. It was a woman who was actually in her 30s. And we went years and years and years without trying to do any research. And we would just put it off as somebody being senile instead of the same determination that we took with polio or the same determination that we took with, you know, plagues and heart situations and even something simple like appendicitis. Appendicitis used to kill people. I have a great grandparent who died in the 20s from appendicitis. Um, so how is it all of these years later, we still don't understand and we don't have the support for people dealing with dementia? Well, David, the first thing I'm going to do in this podcast and is take my honey out of the refrigerator. I mean, the other thing that's part of this is it's like Social Security. Social Security was set up in the 1930s when life expectancy was actually 63 years old. And now we're living to be, you know, 84 and 85. And, you know, life expectancy has dipped a little bit since the pandemic, but, you know, it's going to continue to march. So as a consequence, there's so much more of this that shows so much more of diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's that are showing up when in a different generation, people would just be dead. And so we're going to just have to come to grips with this, you know, just the, the aging of the population and the trade-offs that we have. Karen, I wonder if you can talk about what Alzheimer's advocates are asking at the state level. So here in Virginia, um, we have a lot of catching up to do. Um, we are working to bring back our waiver program for help for um, people to be able to go into facilities. But unfortunately, a lot of those facilities really aren't someplace that you want to put your grandparents, your parents, or your spouse, or anybody that you care about. And we also need to be able to communicate with Virginians on the programs that are currently available. I know um, when I advocate and I go to a congressional district office, um, sometimes those staff members aren't aware of the Department of Aging and Rehabilitative Services, or DARS. Um, they don't know what our Health and Human Services um, 
workers do, even though, you know, they're all part of the government. Um, you have this federal side and you have the state side. And if I call someone, I'm probably not going to call my state senator or my state delegate. I'm going to call my congressional member and say, hey, how do I get help? And those staff members need to understand any place that somebody's going to turn. Doctors need to understand um, what resources are available to people once they get diagnosed and they can't be scared to make that diagnosis. We also have a shortage of physicians, of neuropsychologists, of gerontologists, um, you know, and to piggyback on what you said about caregivers, we don't have enough caregivers. We don't have enough beds available for those that need them. Um, so we have a lot of work. I could, I could probably list out 10 more things. Um, and it's one of those things that most of it does take some funding. Um, but, you know, being able to share available resources isn't really that expensive, but it's something that needs to be tackled and it needs to be done, especially in rural areas. Um, you know, Virginia is a vast state. Not everybody lives in Richmond or Virginia Beach or Northern Virginia. And there's not a lot of continuity either because uh, in Northern Virginia, there's a lot more resources available than there are, let's say, than somebody that lives in Big Gap, Virginia, or Suffolk, Virginia. So, um, so I think we also need to look at making it a lot more equitable as far as the care and the resources and the education that we provide. We have learned from recent research that Black Americans are twice as likely as white Americans to have Alzheimer's because of the increased risk factors associated with the disease but also because of the insidious impacts of a life experiencing racism. How do we work on decreasing disparities and also increasing access to programs and care? Uh, women. Women are two-thirds more likely to get dementia, and they're also more likely to be the caregiver. Um, and so that's also an issue. And then you have Latinx. They also have a higher rate, um, and they tend to internalize and keep to themselves. They have a strong sense of privacy and of family. And so it's very hard for us to reach them with the education and the knowledge of the services that are available. We do try to um, go into community centers and any kind of religious affiliations that people may have. Um, because also what's not represented are these people that are more likely to get Alzheimer's or dementia who are not represented in our clinical trials. Um, our clinical trials tend to not be the same population that is, that is affected. And so that's something that the Alzheimer's Association has also been working on. Um, and I think a, a huge part of it is ha erasing that stigma that can come with it, that embarrassment of getting this diagnosis or not even going to the doctor and trying to get a diagnosis, but also them feeling like they can get the support outside of their immediate community, um, because I think that's also an issue that we see. Um, Dr. Manning, Dr. Carol Manning, 
UVA. They do some telehealth. You would have to go to UVA for your first visit. Um, and then, then you can do some telehealth with them. So they do provide that. And then there um, is the Martha W. Goodson Center for Excellence in Aging that is in the Williamsburg area that um, Riverside runs. That is actually another um, great resource for people in the Hampton Roads area. When you talk about the African-American community, I think it's also important to note that it's not just dementia and Alzheimer's. It's a whole range of issues. And, you know, most recently we saw, you know, the issue of maternal death rates are off the charts. Obviously, life expectancy is much less. And it goes to a lot of the social determinants that you're talking about. And it does, again, come back to politics. It comes back to, you know, there's two different visions of America right now. And they've really... They haven't been more stark in a hundred years. And, and, you know, I, I think, you know, a, a kind of way to look at it is President Obama had one vision for America and Donald Trump had a very different vision for America. And it seemed like with Obama, there was more hope. There was more hope that these, that, that a more colorblind society where everyone had the same opportunities. But you first had to acknowledge the challenges and the problems. And that seemed to disappear in 2016. And, you know, this war is still going on. And, you know, what voters decide, you know, a year from November is going to make a big, you know, choice in how these and other problems are addressed. I just want to point out once again, this is not a red or a blue issue. This is definitely a purple issue in the sense that um, Alzheimer's and dementias affect, you know, all different backgrounds. It doesn't matter where you're from, how much money you have, or what side of the aisle you are on. Um, when you need help, you need help. And sometimes I think it can get politicized, but overall, I think advocates need to understand when they share their stories, um, it does have the emotional side. But when you have somebody who's physically conservative, sometimes you need to point out to them that spending the money now for the research saves money in the long run because we're looking at an astronomical cost um, to Medicare and Medicaid um, coming down the pike with the number of people that will be diagnosed. Um, in the coming years. And so ultimately, we will be able to save money by investing now and having these programs and having um, platforms in place and programs in place and our system in place for when we have these people diagnosed. So I think it's important to be able to share that aspect with even those who may say, oh, that's a lot of money, um, you know, we don't have it. Well, actually, you better have it now because it's going to be even more down the road. And that's going to make you look like you didn't have the forethought and the vision to see what was coming. And, and the only thing I'd add for potential advocates out there is don't make demands. Have a conversation. Develop relationships you know, reward good behavior with letters to the editor or tweets or other things, because 
politicians notice those things. Um, but I, I, I think the whole basis of this podcast and everything we've been talking about is things won't change on their own. They'll change with advocacy. We've seen this throughout our history. Um, without advocates, women wouldn't be voting, right? Women wouldn't be voting and the civil rights laws wouldn't have passed and gay people wouldn't be able to get married. You know, it's an ongoing struggle, but the hope is we're all marching toward a better place. Luke Albee, Karen Gardner, and Dr. David Goldberg, I want to thank all of you so much for sharing your personal stories and for discussing the realities of how this public health crisis is impacting so many individuals and families, but also for giving us ideas for how we can be good advocates. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.